few years ago, a writer named A.J. Jacobs went on an adventure. The adventure took him to different continents and to encounters with a bunch of different people. It was a gratitude adventure, and it all started when he was having meals with his family, and he wanted to express some kind of uh, prayer or gratitude at the meal. Uh, maybe you grew up in a family where that was like regular practice, or maybe that's your practice now. Uh, the thing about A.J. Jacobs is he's agnostic, so it, it didn't make a lot of sense to him to offer a traditional prayer of thanks for the meal. And rather, he sat at the table with his family, his kids, his wife, and he, he looked and he saw like the tomatoes on the table, so he would say out loud, thank you to the farmer who farmed the tomatoes, and thank you to the market that brought the tomatoes to us, and thank you to the dairy farmer who created the, the butter that we have here today. And so he would try this sort of practice of expressing gratitude at the table. And then one day his son said to him, Dad, you know they're not here, right? <laughs> they can't hear you. It might be nice if you actually like, found a way to tell them that you were thankful. Well, that made sense to him. So he decided that he would go on a journey to thank the people who were responsible for what he consumed. But when he thought about an entire meal, there was a lot there. So he decided to narrow his focus and he was going to go thank every person responsible for his morning cup of coffee. Now, he did the obvious sort of starting point, which is the coffee comes from coffee beans, right? So he flew to Colombia to a coffee farm, and he met up with the coffee bean farmers in Colombia and thanked them for the coffee. And they stopped him, and they said, well, that's very kind, but you need to know that, that we can't do this without people that help us do this. So they said, for example, the machine that we use to harvest the coffee beans is made in Brazil. So he went to Brazil and, th and thanked the people who made the machine that helped him harvest the coffee beans. But then they also pointed out that we use trucks to transport all of this agricultural good. And so he decided he would thank the people that make the trucks. And he found out that the automaker that makes the truck that the coffee farmers in Colombia use uses steel that's made right here in Indiana. So then he went to the steel mill in Indiana and thanked the steel workers for making the steel that made the vehicle that the coffee farmers used to get the coffee beans transported to the places where he could drink his coffee. He went down this line thinking, well, if I'm thinking the people who made the trucks and the steel, I should probably think the people who made the road. So he went to an asphalt plant and thanked the people that make the asphalt, that make the road that the truck drives on, that the coffee beans go in, so that he could have his morning cup of coffee. He found out that there's a woman who manages pest control at the warehouse that stores the coffee beans, and he called her and he thanked her. He thought about the fact that he wasn't burning his hand on the paper cup of coffee when he went out for a cup of joe, and he thought about, you know that, that sleeve thing that you put around a, a paper cup of coffee, right? Do you know what, I, on Thursday I said, do you know what that's called, and people yelled sleeve. I said, no, I, I understand I just said that. Do you know there's another word for it? It's called a zarf. Look it up, Z-A-R-F, yeah. So the inventor of the modern-day Zarf, he reached out to that person and thanked him. Uh, he, like me, apparently likes his coffee a bit pretentious. So uh, he and I both go to places where it really matters that you get not just the taste, but the aroma of some really, really excellent coffee. And there's a designer that created a very particular coffee lid, a disposable coffee lid, that doesn't impede the, the transportation of the aroma from the coffee to your nose as you drink it in a lidded cup. So we found that, that lid designer and said thank you to them. He went on and on and on, and then he wrote a book about this called Thanks a Thousand, because he ended up thanking something like a thousand people who were part of the supply chain that brought him his cup of coffee. Uh, I was uh, hearing him talk about this in a, in a talk that I, I, I saw, and I was thinking about if you, if you narrow your focus to the cup of coffee, imagine what happens when you expand your focus to everything that's made it possible for you to be sitting right here at Sapin City Church today at the 11 a.m. gathering. I mean, even just in the last few hours, imagine what has had to happen for you to be here. 
If you really widen your focus, it might dawn on you that for 4.5 billion years, the sun has been burning at the center of our solar system, giving heat and light and energy to planet Earth. That's 4.5 billion years where every second of 4.5 billion years, every second, 600 million metric tons of hydrogen have been converted into helium in a nuclear fusion process that if it stops happening, we're all in trouble, right? There's an incredibly reliable thing happening at the center of our solar system that without it, we wouldn't be here today. There's whatever had to happen for you to have the clothing that you're wearing right now, thank God, otherwise we'd be here naked and it'd be a very different kind of church gathering. <laughs> Just go on down the line, the air that we're breathing, the gravitational constant that's holding matter together right now, like go on down the line. I know some of us are having a hard day, a hard week, a hard season. I know some of us are fighting an uphill battle. And I don't, I don't mean to dismiss that. There's probably um, some things that you don't feel very grateful for right now. But even on the hardest days, there is this massive conspiracy of events happening that ensure that you're here and you're, and you're breathing and that we have another chance to make it together, right? You take all that, and then you add the possibility that underneath and around and within all of these material processes and experiences, that perhaps driving that entire conspiracy of events, the possibility that there is being itself, God lending being to all of this, energizing all of this. You put all that together in, in an attempt at awareness, and it seems that it's actually um, quite appropriate that we would enact our gratitude that we would find ways with flesh and blood, bodies and time and energy and words to enact our gratitude for all that like, has brought us to this point in life. Now, we could talk about enacting gratitude, practicing gratitude. We could talk about it as a great exercise in psychological well-being, and it is. In fact, the mountain of research that supports the idea that enacting our gratitude is good for us, that mountain grows every day. So we could talk about that. Uh, we could talk about the fact that it's just polite or it's good manners or we would have a better society if more of us were better at saying thank you. We could talk about those things, but that's not actually the point that I'm making today. The point that I'm making right now is that enacting our gratitude is simply a way of acting in accord with reality because the reality is that we are here thanks to an enormous conspiracy of events that have made it possible for us to be in this moment living, breathing with another like, step in our story, right? By the way, in the Bible, there's a word for acting in a way that conforms to reality. And the word is wisdom, right? So for example, if I'm walking along and there's a wall in front of me and I turn left before I get to the wall, that's wisdom. Because <laughs> there's a reality called a wall right there and if I don't act in accord with that reality, things are gonna hurt. Wisdom is acting in accord with reality at every level. And I'm saying enacting gratitude is an act of wisdom. It, it's, it's an action which makes sense of what's real and true about the lives that we live and the world that we have around us. So we've been talking about enacting gratitude this month, but we haven't used that phrase so much as we've lifted an image from the scriptures to talk about enacting our gratitude. And the image that we've lifted from the scriptures is building altars. Building altars. Flesh and blood, uh, places and time, where we, we build something, we create something, we enact something to say, this is the place where I need some generosity, some kindness, where I bumped into some blessing. We've talked about building altars. Uh, as a reminder, this is the definition that I offered a couple of weeks ago for an altar, that it's a physical artifact, often built out of materials gathered from the place where a blessing occurred, that through sacrifice translates that blessing into an act of gratitude to God. 
It's a lot there, so I'll read it one more time. A physical artifact often built out of materials gathered from the place where a blessing occurred that through sacrifice translates that blessing into an act of gratitude to God. And the challenge this month for us as a church has been not just to hear sermons about gratitude, not just to think thoughts about gratitude, not to feel more feelings of gratitude, but to enact our gratitude by actually building altars. So I posed some questions that might help us start thinking about how we would build an altar. Like you could ask yourself, where and how have I encountered some generosity, some gift, some blessing? Where have I bumped into the kindness of God? Perhaps through the life of somebody else or through an experience or a place or a season. Maybe it's something that you're living in right now. Maybe it's something that just happened. Or maybe it's something from a long time ago that you've yet to fully embrace or memorialize and you, you realize like you haven't really recognized what a good thing that it was. But you could start and just say, where and how have I encountered some generosity, some blessing, some gift? And then once, once you kind of zero in on that, you might ask, what materials or artifacts are associated with that experience? Is there anything physical about place are there any objects that are a part of that experience? Uh, if, not, if not, like things that you can get your hands on, are there words, stories, um, tales that you can tell? Are there recipes? Are there, are there something like artifactual from that experience that you could think about? And then upon identifying some materials or artifacts, how could I make an altar in time or space with those materials or artifacts? What, like, what could you do with them? Something creative, something unexpected, could you do something with that? And then you could ask, is there any way of making this a sacrifice? Now, uh, two weeks ago when we opened up this topic, we spent a little bit of time on the sacrifice thing. So you can, you can go back and listen to that on the podcast if you missed it. I won't belabor it, but I'll just observe again that like, by sacrifice, we don't mean something that you, that you offer up in figure to appear, appease some kind of vengeful, angry God. But by sacrifice, we mean something that costs you something. And because it costs you something, it ennobles the act of gratitude, right? There's something honoring about giving something up, giving something away, laying something down as you memorialize the good or the gift that you've experienced. So uh, we've put these questions in front of the community and for the last couple of weeks, I've been hearing about people who are building actual altars in their lives, in their homes, in their world. I've been getting text messages and emails and I've seen stuff on social media and the stuff that you've come up with, I'm already so inspired by. I've seen people who have taken physical artifacts from places of their family history of the generations before them, and they've taken like a physical object from those places and brought them into their current space to think about how far they have come in those generations. I've seen people who have written songs about a difficult experience in the past that now looking back on it, they've been able to see that there were blessings actually lurking within that very, very difficult time. I've heard about people who are cooking special meals with recipes that come from some other time or experience. Maybe it's um, a family reality that you lived in when you were young that was really safe and kind. And maybe there was like a meal that was part of that experience and you haven't had it in quite a while, but people are going to the store and getting their hands into the mixing bowl and making things. Uh, so we've heard uh, a number of these. If you want to share with the community or with those of us who are watching, you can always like, take a picture and tell the story of your altar and use the hashtag SBCCAlters. Uh, but what we're really looking forward to is next week, which is show and tell. So next week's not like a sermon-centric gathering. Next week, the gathering revolves around two things. One is you, like bringing your altars or telling the story of your altar. We'll have some open floor time in case you want to raise a hand and talk to the community about what you built. If you have something that you could bring and physically show us, do it. Like you could bring the actual pieces that you've used as an altar into the gathering here. We'd love to see that. And then the other centerpiece of our gathering next week will be Eucharist or communion 
which is itself a, a sort of Thanksgiving meal built upon an altar. And so we'll talk more about that next week. But uh, this, is, this is like the practice for us as a family this month, and I'm so looking forward to next week uh, because consistently in our, in our brief history as a church, we have learned that when we turn the attention to what's happening in your everyday life, it tends to be in your everyday life where we find remarkable sort of moments of God working, moving, uh, leading, uh, creating. And so I get really excited when we get to shine the spotlight on what's going on with you, and that'll be next week. Now this week, uh, I just want to go back to the altar text that we've been looking at, these improvised moments of altar building in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. I, w- I want to look at those uh, for a moment because there's a, something peculiar going on there that I have been wrestling with. There's something that stands out if you sit with these texts for a moment, and it can sort of disturb you, challenge you, disrupt you. There's a a question imposed or implied in these texts, and I want to see if I can draw that out for you. And it has to do with the way that people respond when they have built an altar. It has to do with maybe what an altar means for the people who have built it, or what the next step is for them after they have built the altar. So let's see if, if you can observe this with me. First, I'm going to go to the story of a man named Isaac in the book of Genesis. Uh, Isaac has been on the move because of a famine. And so it's not just Isaac, but it's his clan, his family, sort of the wealth of their entire estate, their livestock. They're, they're on the move as a clan because there's a famine. And when there's a famine, you have to keep moving to find provision that you need, right? And not only are they on the move because of the famine, but it seems that everywhere they go during this famine, they run into a fight with other clans, with other uh, sort of mini tribes, which makes sense if resources are scarce and everybody's sort of roving about that part of the world trying to find the things that they need for their people. So you've got them uh, facing a famine, keep running into fights. And then one night while on the road, Isaac has this vision or encounter with God. And his takeaway from this experience is that God is basically saying, I know it might feel like you're alone out there, and I know it's hard. I know you might even be afraid, but I'm actually with you. I see you. Uh, I want to bless you. There's a future that I am leading you toward that is good, and you don't have to be afraid. So he has this... um, this encounter with God that reassures him, that comforts him, that strengthens him. And his response is to build an altar in that place. So we read it here in Genesis 26. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Just, just that, just hang with that for a second. So he's on the move in a time of famine and fighting And then there's a place where he has this encounter with God which reassures him, that tells him he's not on his own, that things are going to be okay. And his impulse or his response to building the altar in that place is to stay in that place, to dig some roots in that place. He pitched a tent and dug a well, which is a way of saying, we're going to camp out here for a while. And I call that out because if, if you are building altars this month, if you are naming the places and the experiences of God's kindness in your life, you might discover that what an altar does for you is that it pushes back against this impulse that far too many of us have, which is to keep moving and moving and moving and moving and moving. The altar might have a gravity to it, which says plant your roots here. Don't you realize the oasis that you've been looking for is right underneath your feet? Stop, stop moving on. Like Locate yourself here. Rest in this place. Trust this place. Plant some roots. Pitch your tent. Dig a well. Some of us in the church this month, I think, are going to build altars toward the marriage that you're a part of. And it might be a way of saying, this place, though not every day is easy, I'm sure, this this relationship, this covenant has been a place where I have known goodness and kindness, 
faithfulness and love. And there'll be something about the act of building an altar, something about the, the physical process, the muscle memory of building an altar that will, that will remind you to keep planting yourself there, to invest in that relationship rather than sort of moving on to other things too quickly, right? I suspect there'll be some in our church who will build an altar to celebrate what they've experienced in their neighborhood. It'll be something actually about the street that you live on, the house that you're in, the neighbors across the street. It'll be something about the place where you find yourself, where you look and you say, man, neighborhood life perhaps has not always been easy, but there have been blessings through my neighbors, through, through this physical place. And then what might happen when you build that altar is that it creates a gravity that tethers you, that binds you, that calls you to pitch that tent, to dig that well. Perhaps instead of looking for where the grass is greener in other places, you'll decide to water the grass under your feet. To, to really like invest in the place where you have known some of those good things. Perhaps some parents uh, in our church will build an altar um, to celebrate their experience of being parents. And you'll look at these children, these beautiful, loving, messy, complicated, temper tantrum riddled, difficult kids. And something about building that altar will remind you that in spite of the hard things about that experience, those kids are a gift. And perhaps upon building that altar, you will let it bind you, create a gravity for you to stop looking for distractions and other places to be and ways to be less committed to that experience, and you'll let yourself settle into it, like you're pitching a tent and digging a well, and planting some roots. Some will build an altar to their experience of faith, recognizing that it's, it's through this experience of faith that God has been good to you, that you've known the kindness of God, and building that altar will be powerful for you, especially on the days when that faith feels elusive, when it feels like it has slipped through your fingers. You don't know where it went. It'll be the altar that reminds you that even on the days when you don't feel it, it's probably still there. So Isaac, he has an encounter with God, and he builds an altar, and he calls in the name of the Lord, and then he pitches his tent, and he dug a well. And some of us, upon building our altars, will do the same. Now, the problem is, that's not the only pattern in scripture with characters and their altars. Because, um, by the way, did you feel the sort of tight textual construction of that? It's just like two sentences right there, right? Well, you find a similar tight textual construction between altar building and a different move. In fact, it's like the opposite move. So for example, there's a guy named Abram in the book of Genesis who is called out of his father's household, out of the land that he knew, out of everything familiar and dependable in the life that he was coming from. And he's called to like, walk bravely into this unknown future. This is Genesis 12. And then having received this call and the promise that's sort of baked into it, he has the same impulse to build an altar. But look what happens next with him. This is Genesis 12, 7 and 8. He built there an altar to the Lord, the place where God appeared and gave him this blessing. And from there, he moved on. It's like the similar sort of tight textual construction, but it's the exact opposite impulse. Rather than um, the altar being something that helps him resist this addiction to moving on and on and on, it's the altar that perhaps says to him, because you have known the goodness of God in this place, you can trust that God can be good to you in any place. So keep walking. You don't have to cling to it. You don't have to white knuckle your attachment to this experience of blessing because there's something behind that experience of blessing that's gonna be with you every place you go so you can keep walking. The other temptation for so many of us, I think, is that once you find the good stuff, once you find the good old days, the good place, the place where the blessings are, we have this temptation, some of us, to, to cling to it, to grip it so tightly because we're not sure there's more where that came from. But the point of an altar is to tell your heart there's more where that came from. So if you are being called to keep walking, you can keep walking. 
Now, those are two fundamentally divergent sort of responses to building an altar, right? Sometimes you build an altar, and, and it creates a gravity. It tethers you. It binds you to the place, the people, the experience where the blessing was. And sometimes you build an altar, and it liberates you. It reminds you. It makes you free to keep walking, to keep moving into the future that you are being called to. You can feel the tension when you put these two texts side by side. They built an altar there, pitched his tent there, and dug a well. He built there an altar to the Lord, and from there he moved on. And the question I want to pose for you is, if you build an altar this month, what's the right response to it? Uh, now I'm going to give you five steps to figure that out. No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea what the answer is for you. It's way above my pay grade to tell you whether your altar is calling you to be tethered and bound to that place or whether your altar is liberating you to keep walking and move on. But I think the question is incredibly important. I think some in our church will sit with us and wrestle with us for a moment. You might have to pray about it. You might have to sit in a meditative, reflective sort of silent space and allow that space to create the possibility of, of knowing your own biases, your own temptations. You know, upon perhaps praying about what this altar means for you, some, some will discover that we are just far too prone to running and moving on. Perhaps there's some trauma, some wounding, some experience, or just... It's the way that we're wired, that we are prone to moving on, and the hard but the holy thing is to stay. Others, perhaps through prayer of some quiet reflection, might realize that in fact we stay out of fear, attachment, anxiety, and that the brave and beautiful thing is waiting for you out there if you keep walking. <coughs> prayer is good. A few close friends who know you and love you and can ask you good questions, that's good. Uh, but I do want to pose the question, what is your altar calling you to? I also want to argue that even though these seem like divergent reactions in two different directions, staying and going, I also want to argue that underneath those two reactions, I think the same thing is going on. Let me see if I can get there. So let me tell you another story. Uh, this summer, I had the experience of a really profound act of altar building. It was a communal act of altar building. And it was in response uh, to the loss of a dear friend. So I mentioned this in one other sermon, but over the summer, um, one of my best friends in the world died by suicide. Uh, very, very close friend, and we'd known each other for a very long time, and we lived together after college. And um, so I spent the summer uh, at funerals, one in Nashville, uh, which is where he was living when he died, and then also one out in San Diego, which is where he had lived for maybe a decade of his adult life before he ended up in Nashville. And of course, a funeral is a form of altar building, right? I mean, at its best, a funeral is a whole community of people who are creating a moment in time, an altar in time, a ritual to say thank you for the gift of this life that we experienced. Thank you for the gift of this life that we had in our midst, right? And as we were doing funerals for Alex, I could feel very strongly in my spirit that, um, that we were saying thank you for his life um, in spite of the tragic and um, difficult way in which we lost him. There was still a great gratitude for the life that we had experienced with him. And so I went to Nashville and did the funeral and then uh, went out to San Diego a few weeks later for part two of saying goodbye. And in San Diego, uh, what we did was a different kind of funeral of sorts, actually. Um, we did a paddle out. Alex was a huge surfer. He loved surfing, surfed like almost every day before work. And so we went to one of the beaches that he loved to surf. And there's a whole crew of us, like Southern California surfers and Midwestern non-surfers like me. <laughs> And uh, we all had surfboards, and we all paddled uh, a bit of a ways out into the ocean there. And then um, we sort of clustered. We sort of grabbed one another, 
and huddled up on the boards, um, creating a sort of a temporary flotilla, you know? And as we were all sort of gripping each other on our boards on this sort of improvised raft, we told stories about Alex and we prayed and uh, we sang. And, uh, and then we um, panned out into a big circle on the ocean. And Alex's wife, who was, uh, who was very pregnant with their child at the time, she was, she was out there too. And she had a lay around her neck that was meant to sort of represent his life for us. And she threw the lay, the, like a Hawaiian thing, right, out into the middle of our circle. And, um, and then we spoke our love and our thanks to Alex. And then we all kind of splashed the water toward him. Um, I describe it, not, not, I want to show it to you because um, it's an experience that's better seen than heard. Um, Alex uh, worked a lot with filmmakers and artists over his life, and so some of those filmmakers were there, and the way that they wanted to honor Alex was to capture that. And so I want to share, because it's, it's, it's a moment of communal altar building, and I want to keep these examples in front of us, but also uh, mostly because I want to tell you what's happening in me um, through this experience. So first of all, watch this. So um, as I was processing Alex's death and then attending these funerals, which are sort of living altars, right? Um, I was really nostalgic and reminiscent of what his friendship meant to me and so many people and the really good things that we experienced. Um, South Bend is actually like littered with memories. I went to college here, then we lived in this old house in River Park together with other friends. Um, Alex and I like discovered beer together at Fiddler's Hearth. And it's like, you know, early in our young adult journey, it was very exciting for two Bethel college students to discover beer at Fiddler's Hearth. <clears throat> if you know Bethel, you know. Um, you know, we'd go there every Monday night and uh, we processed a lot about the things we were learning and, and growing into in that season of life. Um, Alex was one of those people that made everyone around him for like a million bucks. Uh, he had a way of uh, uh, articulating his belief in you. Uh, when you were with Alex, you knew that you had somebody in your corner, not just, not just casually, but specifically for the best parts of your life, the biggest parts of your life. Like, the thing that you are most here for, you know that thing in your heart that says, this is what I'm actually here to do, and maybe you don't know exactly what it is, but you have a sense that it matters. Like, he was one of those friends that found a way of seeing it and naming it and continually cheering for it in your life. And so, um, as we were moving toward these altars in time in Nashville and San Diego, like building these moments and these physical experiences, I um, discovered that what I was struggling with was a profound sense of a sort of defeatist nostalgia that wanted to just go back and stay back, right? Which is really normal in the wake of loss. I just wanted to go back there and stay back there. Um, 
thinking about him made me think about those seasons in my life, and there were parts of those seasons in my life that felt way less complicated than life is today and more idealistic than life is today. And I found myself being almost eclipsed with a sense of, um, like, could we just go back there, like that good old days syndrome, right, that can tether you in a way that, that binds you and leaves you unfree, right? And that was heavy on my heart as we got to the water in San Diego and we began to paddle out on the ocean. Um, surrounded by many other faces that I knew knew Alex, and you could kind of sense um, his spirit with us. I um, actually felt that, that gravity growing, that gravity toward the past, toward the way things were before he died. And I could almost feel the way that like, like quicksand can kind of suck you in, right? Then we got out there, and we clustered up in that flotilla, and then we spread out into that circle, and we splashed that water. And... Uh, the thing that like, it took me a while to work out was that something shifted in my chest while we were out there. It's almost like something got translated or transformed in that act of building an altar in time. And I went out there on the water. As I, as I went out to the water, um, I could feel myself getting sort of trapped in, in the way things were and kind of nostalgic. Could we go, go back to the good old days? But then all of the good old days, all the goodness that was in the good old days, it somehow got like, translated or transformed in that moment uh, on our boards in that circle, and it, w it got transformed into, like, if that was so good, then why don't you trust what you learned from it, and why don't you let that carry you forward? Like, if one of the reasons we like being around friends like that is because of what they believe about us, and what they help us believe about ourselves, then why don't I go home and, and work harder at living up to what I believe is the best about me, right? Like, why, why don't I... Um, take even more seriously uh, the things that he would be cheering for in my life and give myself to those things, right? Like I could feel in, in the act of building that altar on the water that something got sort of liberated and opened up for me and that that go back to the good old days sort of syndrome got sort of healed out there. And the energy didn't go away, but it got transformed into a forward-looking energy that I, I felt like bringing me home saying like, keep going, man. If Alex were here, he would surely say keep going. And that whatever goodness or um, kindness I experienced in him is surely just a faint echo of that goodness which has always been the baseline of the universe. And his was just a particular instantiation of that goodness that has always been there and always will be. So let's just keep living up to that, right? Uh, during this time in my life, I was um, using a prayer book called Daily Prayer by an Irish poet named Padre Gotuma. And um, his poetry and his prayers come out of the context of conflict. They have a a reconciliation center in Northern Ireland where they, they really practice the work of bringing factions together and talking about hard things. And one of his daily prayers has this simple line that I had been ruminating on during that season. And the simple line is this, we will live the life we are living. Just that, we will live the life we, were, we are living. We will show up for it. We'll give ourselves fully to it. And I'd been ruminating on that sentence from that prayer for a while when these filmmakers made this film. And I don't know if you could hear, that's the voice of a philosopher named Alan Watts. And at the end, he said, you must live where you are, right? There's no other place to be. And I think the point is that whether the altar you build will tether you to the place where you are, whether the altar that you build will have you pitch a tent and dig a well and plant some roots, or whether that altar will call you to keep moving, keep walking, keep moving forward. Either way, the actual underlying effect is the same which is that either way, an altar is calling you to live the life that you are living. 
If, if we are prone to escapism and, and moving on and moving on and avoiding the real that is right here in front of us, then the gift of an altar is to stop escaping your life and moving on. Live here, live now. And if some of us are being called in some way to step out, to be brave, to do something new, to leave someplace that we call home, and we're afraid to do it because of the anxiety that has gripped our hearts, then an altar, what it does for us is it liberates you. And it says, the, the God who has been good to you there can be good to you anywhere. So keep walking. Keep living your life. An altar says, we must live the lives that we are living. We must keep walking. We must keep moving that the goodness that met us in these places will keep meeting us along the road. And so I, I, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, what is, what is the altar that you build telling you today? Is there any place that you are far too tempted to move on from, to skip over? And is an altar saying, don't miss the oasis that is right here under your feet. Stop looking for the greener grass in other places and water the grass right here. Give yourself fully, give up the escape clause. Like, give yourself fully to what you're a part of? Is there anybody who needs to own that? Is there anybody who, um, perhaps for trauma or wounding or personality, has, has a fear that it's not really that good out there? And so the one place where you found something trustworthy, you, you cling to it and you look at your knuckles and you realize they are white because you've got such an iron grip on the one place where you found the good thing. And perhaps what your altar is telling you today is the God who is good there is good everywhere so you can keep going, live your life. I know that we have um, many in our church who fight good and important battles. We have people in our church who are fighting um, for their own mental health or emotional well-being and it's been hard to come by. We have people who are fighting for their own like financial uh, survival because it can be really hard. We have people who are fighting for their marriages, for their families, for their neighborhoods. We have people who are fighting for justice in a world that is tragically unjust. We have people who are fighting for their own dignity and fighting for the dignity of others. And those fights are good and noble, but I'm, I'm convinced that the best fighting comes from a place of, of deep groundedness, that underneath all that is broken and wrong, there is an abiding goodness and wholeness from which we live. It's in God and it gives us our being every day. And it's that goodness that has maintained the nuclear fusion of the sun and held the gravitational constant and lent being to your life right now. So live the life you are living and let the altar help you along the way. So may we build altars. May you have a eyes wide open awareness of all that has lent itself to you that you might be here living and breathing today. As we build altars, may we allow the gravity of what we build to either ground us or liberate us. And either way, may we live the lives that we are living, trusting that the goodness that we encounter in moments and places is in fact the very goodness of God and it goes with us everywhere. Next week, may we have a great Thanksgiving celebration and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.